children, you're more than welcome to check them into children's ministry. We run that through first grade, for, but, for, but your children are certainly most welcome in the service with us, learning just the, 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 the rhythms of, of worship alongside of us. Um, we are um, slowly working through our Confession of Faith, the London Confession of Faith, and I'm going to read to you paragraph 10, and I'm actually going to start back over on chapter 8 again next Sunday, just because um, chapter 8 is so rich as, as we just briefly, before we open up the Word, just consider Christ as mediator. But, but this is what paragraph 10 says of chapter 8 of our confession on Christ the mediator. It says, this number in order of offices, which is Christ is prophet, priest, and king, okay? This number and order of offices is necessary, for in respect of our ignorance, we stand in need of his prophetical office, and in respect of our alienation from God and imperfection of the very best of our services, we need his priestly office to reconcile us and to represent us acceptable unto God. And in respect to our, our averseness and utter inability to return to God and for our rescue and security from our spiritual adversaries, we need His kingly office to convince, subdue, draw, uphold, deliver, and preserve us to His heavenly kingdom. And so that is chapter 8, paragraph 10 of Christ is Mediator. But if you have your Bibles, open them up to the Gospel of Mark, the Gospel of Mark, chapter 7. We're going to spend a couple of weeks, I think, here on this passage that I'm going to read for us this morning. So allow me to read the first 23 verses of this. John Mark, just under the, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God writing, it says, Then the Pharisees and some of the scribes came together to him, having come from Jerusalem, now, when they saw some of his disciples eat bread with defiled hands, that is, with unwashed hands, they found fault. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands in a special way, holding the tradition of the elders. When they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other things which they have received and hold, the washing of cups, pitchers, copper vessels, and couches. Verse 5, then the Pharisees and scribes asked him, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat bread with unwashed hands? He, speaking of Jesus, he answered and said to them, well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites? As it's written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me, and in vain they worship me, teaching his doctrines, the commandments of men. For laying aside the commandment of God, you hold the tradition of men, the washing of pitchers and cups, and many other such things you do. He said to them, all too well you reject the commandment of God, that you may keep your tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and your mother, and he who curses father or mother, let him be put to death. But you say, if a man says to his father or mother, whatever profit you might have received from me is called Corbin, that is, a gift to God, that's what that means, then you no longer let him do anything for his father or his mother, making the word of God of no effect through your tradition 
which you've handed down, and many such things you do. Just pause there quickly, verse 13. I just want you to note, just a comment here, right? Making the Word of God to no, infect, uh, uh, no effect, right? There, there, there's a verbal acknowledgement here by the Pharisees. They would never say, God did not say, honor your father and mother, right? The problem here is in the application, right? What we do with our orthodox confessions matters. Verse 14, when he'd called all the multitude to himself, he said to them, hear me, everyone, and understand there's nothing that enters a man from the outside which can defile him, but the things which come out of him, those are the things that defile a man. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. When he had entered a house away from the crowd, his disciples asked him concerning the parable. So he said to them, are you thus without understanding also? Do you not perceive that whatever enters a man from the outside cannot defile him because it does not enter his heart but his stomach and is eliminated, thus purifying all foods? And he said, what comes out of a man that defiles a man. For from within, out of the heart of men, proceed evil thoughts, adulteries, fornications, murders, thefts, covetousness, wickedness, deceit, lewdness, an evil eye, blasphemy, pride, foolishness. Verse 23, all these evil things come from where? From within and defile a man. We go to the Lord in prayer. God, this is your word. And we thank you for it, God. Help us to help us to worshipfully consider it together. And to by your grace, by your spirit, be changed by it. To see you more clearly, to love you more deeply. And so we thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. So like I said, I think we're going to end up spending a, a couple of, of, of weeks here because I, I, want us to give, uh, I want us to give due consideration to this particular passage of Scripture. And, and also, we're, we're not in any rush. We don't have any pressure to, to, to just blow past any of this stuff, right? And, and, and I pray that t- together that our pace is edifying to you. I, I, I want to know God's Word as your pastor because I want to know God, and, and I think we share that heartbeat together. But I, I, I want my thinking, I want my worship, I want my devotion, I want my moral character to be shaped by our triune God as we warmly, week in and week out, just consider the sacred text together as we consider God's holy word together. So we're going to spend as much time as we need to spend, and, and allow me just to speak to that just briefly for a moment. Right. Uh, I'm, I'm under no delusion about the type of society that we live in. We, we are a, a consumeristic soundbite, uh, 140 characters of le- or less type of society, right, which has led to us having the, the attention span of a, a squirrel, right? <clears throat> but one of the things that we have to do each and every Lord's Day, and, and hopefully this spills into your own walking with, with the Lord the other six days of the week, is we, we have to bring that sort of antsiness into subjection to, to our, our sovereign God, right? He, he's worthy of our sustained attention, right? And, and these are his words, right, that we read. These are, 
These are holy words. So every Lord's Day, as we consider the word together, be, be aware that you may have to fight and subdue your tendencies to be impatient and to rush past things. Right? You may have to, by God's grace, practice self-control in your thinking as you work through the text. And remember that, that beholding our triune God and enjoying him through his word, by the power of the Spirit, right? That's our aim. That's, that's our goal as God's church. So, so don't get antsy. But if you do get antsy, don't despair. Just see it as an opportunity to grow in the Lord, okay? Now, the account that we just read together, it's also included in Matthew's gospel, right? And, and we see here another collision, if you will, with the religious leaders of the day. We see this collision with the Pharisees and with the scribes. And um, it's, in other words, it's the, usual, it's the usual suspects that we see Jesus kind of colliding with here. And what's happened is they've journeyed from Jerusalem for the purpose of seeing Jesus, Okay, they, they've journeyed from Jerusalem for the purpose of seeing Jesus. So we have to remember the popularity of Christ at this particular stage in his earthly ministry. Right? Our text last week, if you remember, uh, it ended with us uh, seeing people recognize Jesus when he, when he came into town. And, and then word about him being there, it began to, to spread throughout the whole surrounding region. And the result of that is that wherever Jesus went, whether it be villages, and again, this is the way the text put it, puts it, whether it be villages, whether it be cities, whether it be the country, there were people seeking him out so that they might be healed. So news about Jesus, and particularly his miracles are well known. They were well known. It was well documented. There are lots of uh, eyewitnesses. And then we have what we could consider these authorized, if you will, these authorized religious leaders that come from the religious capital uh, called Jerusalem. They, 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 they come out to see for themselves, but not because they want to be healed. Right? Not because they have any ailments, not because they are open to the possibility that Jesus is even a prophet, much less the Messiah. Instead, they come out because they envy Jesus. They covet his influence. They covet his popular popularity. And we know that not just because we've observed it earlier in our journey through Mark, although we have, but also because our text signals to us, our text this morning, it signals to us this, this, um, this watchful eye that these religious leaders kept on the followers of Jesus, this watchful eye that these religious leaders kept on the disciples. Now, boys and girls, if you're paying attention have you ever done something that, that another kid didn't think was right? And, and they quickly found an adult, and they, they told on you as soon as they got the opportunity to do that. Right? What is that called? It's, it's called a tattletale, right? It's a, a tattletale is what we, we call that person. And in some way, that, that's what we see happening here. And, and it's a revealing tattle because it exposes to us this heart 
in this passage, this heart that instead of loving God is hardened toward God and just loves itself. Instead of loving God, it cares about the appearance of being right. In other words, this type of heart cares about what other people think and not about what God thinks. But these religious leaders, they, they see Jesus They see his disciples eating bread, and they they haven't washed their hands, and it's like this moment that they've been waiting for. They they immediately jump on this opportunity to discredit the ministry of Jesus. There was this tradition, there was this custom, this special way that Jews would customarily wash their hands. And and this extended to other things, not, not just to the hands. There was a special way to even wash household items. And like I said, this was a custom. This was a a tradition. It was not a law of God, okay? It was not a law of God. We could call it a man-made law. Uh, And it was a man-made law by these so-called authorized, and again, I put that in air quotes, but these authorized religious teachers. It was an oral tradition. One commentator says it this way, he, he ponders the question and answers the question, where do these man-made laws come from? Where do they come from? He said, the Jews have the halakha, which means the way, that's what that word means, which included the oral teachings of the rabbis. That's what the Pharisees had in view when they spoke of, quote, the tradition of the elders. All of the principles and regulations that the rabbis added to the law of God were passed on from generation to generation orally as a part of the halakha until they finally uh, were compiled in the third century as the Mishnah, which comprised the bulk of the Jewish Talmud at that time. So, so the, 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 the Pharisees and the scribes, they, they see the disciples of Jesus not abiding by this custom. They see the disciples of Jesus not abiding by this tradition, this oral tradition and they ask Jesus a question. Okay, they, they ask him a question. And if we're following the tone of the text, uh, we should be able to feel the, the self-righteous, accusing way in which this question, or, or better put, this trap is framed. They say to Jesus, this is a question, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, this is verse 5, but eat bread with unwashed hands? Right? Why do your disciples, right? why do your disciples? That's loaded, isn't it? Right? Has anybody ever asked you a loaded question? Right? They, they give the appearance of trying to understand, right? They give the appearance to being open to instruction, but in reality, the question is an accusation, right? It's an accusation. It's a setup. That's how manipulators ask questions, right? What we see happening here is the authority of Jesus being questioned publicly, mind you. And this is an attempt to humiliate. This is an attempt to shame. This is an attempt to publicly dissent. And, and not only is the authority of Jesus in question, but so is his integrity, his very character is being questioned. These religious leaders here, the Pharisees and the scribes, they are in essence saying the quality of the disciples reflects the quality of the master. 
and we judge, we, the authorized teachers, right, we judge the quality of these disciples to be wretched. Therefore, you, Jesus of Nazareth, you are wretched. Now, not only should we see the, the blasphemous nature of what it is that they're doing, but we should also see they're baiting Jesus, right? They're, they're baiting him. Now, Jesus knows exactly what they're doing, right? He, he responds to them directly. He responds to them scripturally by quoting from Isaiah, right? Who these religious leaders, by the way, would have, of course, revered. And he responds to them by quoting Moses, by quoting the law of God, which is summarized through what? The moral law of God is summarized by what? The ten, yeah, the ten, the ten commandments. And Jesus says, if you're looking along in your Bibles, verses 6 to 7, he says, well did, and I, I, you know, again, trying to follow the tone, it's, I, I kind of picture Jesus saying, well, well, Isaiah was talking about you, wasn't he? And he quotes Isaiah, right? He calls them hypocrites. He quotes Isaiah, these people honor me with their lips, but their heart, which is what matters, right, is far from me, and in vain they worship me. They think, they think that what they're doing is worship, but it is not worship. It is not worship, because we worship God the way God prescribes for us to worship God. We don't invent the way that we worship God. We worship God, and we worship the way he tells us to worship him. And he tells us how to worship him through his word. But he says, these people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me, and in vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. And then down in verse, verses 9 to 10, he says, all too well you reject the commandment of God that you may keep your tradition. Right? He shows them how they have it backwards. And he quotes Moses, again, quoting the law of God, quoting the fifth commandment. He says, Moses said, honor your father and your mother. And, and then he quotes another part. And he who curses father or mother, let him be put to death. Now, in doing this, Jesus, he masterfully contrasts the laws of men, the traditions of men with the superior enduring, righteous, moral law of God. And, and I'm going to get into that more in just a moment, but for now, just notice the strategy. Notice uh, the, the polemical approach here, this fierce rebuttal that Jesus uses. Christ is, he's direct, he's forceful, he cuts to the quick here in his reply. And if you notice, there's no record of these authorized religious leaders responding or speaking back up. It's just silence. And one of the things that's striking to me, and we've noted this along the way, is Mark's style as he writes this gospel, right? It, it is action-focused, fo it's immediate, right? And here he kind of departs from that a little bit by giving us insight into a teaching of Christ here. Right? Instructs these religious leaders. He instructs the multitude. He instructs the disciples, and we kind of see the content of that instruction. And instead of the religious leaders putting Jesus, the eternal God, to shame, Jesus, again, he, he flips this encounter 
on its head. Right? These guys thought that they were coming to shut things down. Right? Jesus hasn't, he hasn't been through their process. He isn't keeping the tradition of the elders. They probably thought to themselves, we haven't approved the things that this man is doing. He hasn't come through us. He needs our permission. He needs our blessing. Right? It, it kind of reminds me of, of, of like pulling por- permits. Right? You, you, you've got to get permission before you do just about anything. But instead of the religious leaders shutting these things down and and thereby putting Christ to shame, Jesus instead, he calls the multitude over and he puts the religious leaders to shame by exposing the ugliness of their hearts. And at the same time, as he's doing that, he speaks these words of spiritual freedom to those who have ears to hear. Jesus gives what Mark calls in verse 17 a parable, and it's this, "'Hear me, everyone, and understand.'" There's nothing that enters a man from the outside which can defile him, but the things which come out, those are the things that defile a man. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. Right? Our text ends with, with Jesus coming away from the multitude with, with the disciples and having to explain to them the parable that he gave to the crowds because the disciples at this stage in the game still lacked understanding and And we see that the emphasis, that the core of his teaching is found in verses 20 to 21. And we'll spend, Lord willing, some more time on this next week. But what comes out of a man, that that defiles a man. For from within, out of the heart of men, proceed evil thoughts, adulteries, fornications, murders, thefts, covetousness, wickedness, deceit, lewdness, an evil eye, blasphemy, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and defile a man. Right? You... In other words, you can't, you can't blame your circumstances for your sins. Right? Your sins, your particular sins, come from the, the center seat of your person, your inner person, your heart. Right? It's the stuff that's on the inside. So as I said, we're going to spend at least two weeks here. Right? We'll see how far we get into the text. But I I want to give you just a few things to reflect on this morning. But, but before I do, let me give you a word and a definition we've been circling around, but we haven't mentioned yet. One that perhaps has been in your mind since we first read the passage this morning, and that's the word legalism. Right? The word legalism. Now, boys and girls, that word legalism, it can be summarized this way. It's when someone says, God said this when God did not actually say that, okay? For those adults that are following along, right, it's the, the binding of one's conscience in ways that God has not authorized. And, and I want to draw out just two things evident in our te- text that's at the heart of every legalist. And by the way, this is a struggle for, for us all, right? We're, none of us are... are uh, can, can truly escape the indictment here. The first is this, the legalist does not love God's law. If you're taking notes, you can jot that down. The legalist does not love God's law. Right? It's wrong for us to think that legalists love God's law. It's wrong for us to think that legalists are obsessed with God's law. They may love rules, right? they may love rules, but man-made rules are not the same thing as the law of God. In contrast to the legalist, to the, the rule maker, the rule keeper, 
Listen to the heart posture of the psalmist. Psalm 19 is striking to me, the way that the psalmist describes the law of God and his position in light of the law of God, or his feelings, if you will, um, his affections for the law of God. Verses 7 to 10 of Psalm 19. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening to the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. This is a perspective on the law of God that comes only from a heart that treasures the Lord, who's the lawgiver. Right? If God made the world, and he did, right? if God made the world, it follows that he knows how this world works best, how we as his creatures can flourish in his world. And, and notice the content of the, 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 the psalmist. Notice what we see here in this section, right? or just his, or the, the, the contentment that he has. He, he doesn't want to tinker with the law of God. Right? We don't see that evident in this psalm. He, he's satisfied with it because he's satisfied with God. Now, this is why the, 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 the psalmist can speak of the law as perfect. This is why the psalmist can speak of the law as being something that is reviving to the soul as wise, as enlightening, as rejoicing of the heart, and true, and righteous, and sweet. He loves the lawgiver. Psalm 24, 1, the earth is the Lord's, in the fullness thereof, get this, the world and all its peoples belong to him, belong to him. Again, the world Everything that God has made, both visible and invisible, He owns it. It's His. Because of that, God alone makes the rules. And and the rules, by the way, His law, it's grounded in His good, unchanging character, which is good for us. Because it means that the law is good and, get this, we don't have to guess about what it is. Right? It's unchanging. In contrast... The legalist's rules serve his own flesh, his own sinful desires. The legalist's rules nurtures his own pride. It's not for the good of others, and it's based on his own fickle and changing character. That's why when someone states that the morality of a country or the morality of a people group is a a collective... um, uh, conclusion. It's the, it's the conclusion that the collective comes to. Well, that's not good enough. That's not good enough, right? We, we, we see where that road leads. There should be something higher than that. The law of God that's written on our hearts given by a lawmaker, our triune God, who is not fickle, who is not sinful, who does not change. Now, what are the ways specifically that the legalist fails to love the law of the Lord, right? And, and, and these things may already be evident, but just to, to 
help us see it a bit more clearly. First, the legalist exchanges God's law for his own, thereby disobeying God's law. All right, this is a putting oneself in the place of the creator. There's only one lawgiver. There's one lawgiver, right? And, and this putting oneself in the place of the one lawgiver, it's as old as Lucifer seeking to be God, right? But go back to our text this morning because we see Jesus address this issue when he rebukes the Pharisees and the scribes. Look down just verse 6 to 15. I'll read it quickly. He answered and said to them, Well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it's written, This people honors me with their lips, their heart is far from me, in vain they worship me. And get this, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Verse 8, For laying aside the commandment of God, you hold the tradition of men, the washing of pitchers and cups and many other such things you do. And he said to them, All too well you reject the commandment of God that you may keep your tradition. Right? You're putting it above it. For Moses said, honor your, and he gets specific here, and we're going to tease this out. Moses said, honor your father and mother, and he who curses father or mother, let him be put to death. But you say, if a man says to his father or mother, whatever profit you might have received from me is Corbin, that is a gift to God, then you no longer let him do anything for his father or his mother, making the word of God of no effect through your tradition, which you've handed down in many such things you do. He's like, this is just one example, right? When he had called all the multitude to himself, he said to them, Hear me, everyone, and understand there's nothing that enters a man from outside which can defile him, but the things which come out, those are the things that defile him. Right. What's significant here, right, is again, the Pharisees and the scribes, they were committed to their customs, their traditions, but they disregarded the clear teaching of Scripture. They, according to Jesus, laid aside the commandment of God. And Jesus, he, he doesn't leave things vague for them. He gives them an example. He applies the word of God. He brings the word of God to bear on those who are within earshot here. And again, specifically the religious leaders. He takes the words of Isaiah and the words of Moses, which are the words of God, and he applies them specifically to these religious leaders and their traditions that are set, these traditions are set are pitted against God. And he, in essence, is saying, Isaiah and Moses, they were talking about you. And the area of focus Jesus gives is this disregard, this breaking of the fifth commandment, honor thy father and thy mother. Exodus chapter 20, the first part of verse 12 there. There was a teaching that was being propagated by these religious leaders that, that one could make a vow. It's now called a, a Talmudic vow. And the vow is that a son could say to his parents, Corbin, and, and be alleviated of, of any responsibility of caring for his parents. And this term, that term Corbin, it's a technical term in the priestly tradition. Think Old Testament here, okay? And it, and it always means, that word always means, and you see it in parenthetical comments in the text, it always means offering to God. It always means offering to God. And you see this in Leviticus, Numbers, and Ezekiel. Now, the Pharisees and the scribes, they got creative with this. And in doing so, they gave freedom to people to violate the fifth commandment for the sake of keeping this Talmudic vow, 
They, they're putting that above God's law. One commentator puts it like this. If a son declared his property Corbin to his parents, he neither promised it to the temple nor prohibited its use to himself, but he legally excluded his parents from the right of the benefit. Should the son regret his action and seek to eliminate the harsh vow which would deprive his parents of all the help they might normally expect from him, he would be told by the scribes to whose arbitration the case was submitted that his vow was valid, the Timotic vow, and it must be honored. Jesus' statement that the scribes do not allow him to do, quote, anything for his parents is not extreme. The renunciation of all profitability extended beyond financial support to such practical kindness as assistance in the performance of religious duties or the provision of care in sickness. In other words, aging parents, your own, your own, right? Your own, your own. So think here for a moment. The Pharisees are accusing the disciples and thus Jesus of not holding to their man-made tradition. Jesus turns this interaction on its head and he demonstrates to them how they're not keeping the law of God. And even worse, they were by their traditions encouraging people to break the fifth commandment. That's what we see going on here. Now, let me draw just a couple of things out for us as as we seek to apply it in our context. First, kids, you have to take care of your aging parents. <clears throat> the, just, to make that, just to make that clear. But first, we, we, can get hi- we, we can get so hyper-focused, okay? So obsessed about things which are not, thus saith the Lord, that, that, that our, we get obsessed about our opinions, right? We get obsessed about our preferences. We get obsessed about our traditions. They, these things may even be habits that we're trying to cultivate in our own lives. And these things aren't necessarily bad in a, of themselves. But when we become hyper-focused on them to the neglect of God's scripture, our priorities are clearly mixed up and we have to repent. Right? Many of the traditions of the religious leaders rose to this level. Right? Tradition isn't bad in and of itself until it contradicts the word and leads to disobedience to the word of God. And we, like the religious leaders, we may find ourselves disobedient to the very word of God as we seek to prioritize the things that we want to prioritize. And that's prideful. That's prideful. And the way out of this is confession and humility and repentance and faith. It's the first thing. We can't be so hyper-focused that we're neglecting the very words of God in our own lives, applying the word of God to our life. The second thing related to this, and I'll just mention this quickly, is that so often we get focused on how other people, right? And I've seen this in the home setting especially, but how those close to us don't behave and do things the way that we want, right? And we have this list of rules and these expectations and we micromanage and we control and we do it in in such a way that's quite frankly enslaving our loved ones. And and honestly, we become so, again, hyper-focused on our agenda, on our rules that we distort the word of God for those closest to us. And, And that's confusing and that's 
unloving. It drives them not closer to the Lord, but further from him because you inadvertently put a wedge between them and God's word. And this gets to the second way in which a legalist does not love God's law, which is that the legalist adds to God's word. The legalist adds to God's word. This is, of course, implied in the very definition I gave you of a legalist. But a legalist takes traditions, puts them on the same level, if not above, practically speaking, God's very words. The legalist may not say this, but he or she functions in such a way uh, that 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 is true and expects other people to function in that particular way. The legalist puts words in God's mouth. He binds the consciences of others in a way he's not authorized to do so. He fights and he quarrels over opinions. He makes his preferences essential, obligatory for others. And again, you certainly see how this can manifest itself in our homes, right? In our marriages and the expectations that we have for one another, in our parenting, how we actually parent, what we emphasize and what we de-emphasize, what we prioritize, what we neglect. And we see this also in our churches, don't we? How many times have you seen people in the church get mad and upset because there was some unscriptural tradition that they demanded be kept? And again, while they may not verbally say their tradition is on par with thus saith the Lord, the the anger and the bitterness and the divisiveness demonstrates that they care more about their tradition and customs than they do about the word of God being rightly divided. Or they care more about their traditions and customs than they do to the sufficiency of Christ being proclaimed week in and week out. We see this in church leadership as well. Right? When the corporate worship service begins to be entertainment-driven, when sin is ignored because God's law is not put forward before the church, and we may want to conclude that this is an example of lawlessness, but that's not exactly true. This is the replacing of one type of law with another. It's an exchange of the divine law for an arbitrary one in which man is the authority, not God. Man knows what's best, not God. Man knows what sinners need, not God. Man knows how to reach the loss, not God. It's behind every pragmatic tendency. So we have to examine our hearts. We have to examine our hearts. Secondly, the legalist not only doesn't love the law of God, doesn't love God's gospel. A legalist does not love God's gospel. The thing about creating your own law, the thing about creating your own law is that there's no Savior who upheld your arbitrary law. Right? Because your, your law is not worthy of the death of the God-man. Right? Christ upheld the law of God, not your law, not my law. So one who preaches a man-made law on par with the law of God is at the same time not preaching a sufficient Savior. What you end up preaching is that your rules are the path to salvation. That's what you end up doing. Instead of preaching Christ and Him crucified and risen from the dead. Again, think about this in our home for a moment. If our children, right, our grandchildren... If they, if they don't have a biblical definition of sin, which the law of God provides, they can't see how Jesus died for their sins. They cannot see it. If their sins become conflated with your preferences, your rules that you've given them, it muddies the water on seeing Christ clearly. 
a clear view of God's law, and, and listen very closely, a, cle- a clear view of God's law leads to a clear view of God's gospel. A clear view of God's law leads to a clear view of God's gospel. Now, there's one reason under all of this that I want to give for us as to why legalists don't love the gospel, and this is it. The gospel of God is pride-crushing, and a legalist clings to his pride. The gospel of God is pride-crushing, and a legalist clings to his pride. And this pride, it manifests itself in at least two ways, and I'll give you these two ways in closing this morning. First is the pride of self-sufficiency. It's the pride of self-sufficiency. We've said this before, but self-sufficiency is an incommunicable attribute of God. In other words, boys and girls, we don't possess it. We are not self-sufficient. Only the true God, our triune God, is the great I am. He's not in need of any creature. He's not dependent upon anything. In contrast, you and I are dependent creatures. We're not an autonomous savior, right? We'll give an account to the great I am, right? Also, and we know this from scripture, every good and perfect gift comes where? From where? From above, from above. But in our pride, right, we look at the checklist that we've made for ourselves and for others as we compare ourselves to other people, which we often do, and we think, I'm doing fine all by myself, right? The legalist thinks, practically speaking, that he's his own savior. However, if we examine ourselves in light of God's law, which is to compare us with God and not with man, we see that we're unclean, right? Isaiah chapter 6 helps clear this up for us. The closer that Isaiah drew to the Lord, the more he realized he was unclean and lived amongst a people who were unclean. But we see that we're not all right. And this is the perspective by God's grace that draws us to the cross of Christ, where we let go of all of our pride and any silly notion that we're righteous or that we're self-made. We're not okay. We're not okay. Right? We are not okay. We need a Savior. The God who made the law is the God who's made us right with Him in Christ who upheld that law. So we have to repent of the pride of this delusion of self-sufficiency. And second and lastly, we have to repent of the pride of despair. There's the pride of despair. Right? Despair is also pride. We may not initially think that's the case, but it is. It's seeing your inability to keep rules, but failing to notice the cross and empty tomb of Christ. It's making a savior out of the rules or your ambitions or what you want to be or what you want to do. It's seeking to uphold the rules as if in keeping those rules, you might be saved. And then as you fail, and you will fail, but as you fail, your savior comes crashing down along with you and you despair. Right? People who struggle with despair are often people who trust in their own righteousness and their own abilities rather than that of Christ's. Now, they don't often think that because they think of themselves negatively. They have quite a low, what we would call, self-esteem. Right? They even speak of themselves negatively, and they may put themselves down very quickly, but that's not humility. That's not what humility is. This is still pride. 
Right? The reason they put themselves down, the reason that they may have low self-esteem is because they continue on this endless cycle of hanging their identity on anything other than Christ Jesus. And when you find your identity in anything other than Jesus, your role as a husband, your role as a wife, your parenting abilities, your vocation, your uh, college education, right? that is your Savior. Little s, that's your Savior. And it's legalism. Keep your own arbitrary rules and live. At best, it's a works-based salvation. Keep God's rules and live. But at its root, it's pride. So the question for us this morning is this. What are you trusting in? What are you trusting in? What is it that when it comes crashing down, you come down with it? And we identify that and we repent of putting our trust in it and trust in Christ alone. That's the bottom line for us this morning. We have to, in the exposing light of God's good and unchanging law, flee to Christ, who is our good and glorious Savior that upheld God's law. Right? We find refuge in Christ. We find peace in Christ. We find contentment in Christ. We find joy and life everlasting in Christ. So this morning, examine your heart. What are your tendencies? Bring God's word to bear on them so that you can call them what they are and then behold the glorious gift that is the gospel, a true gift from your creator. And it's when we swim in the bottomless ocean that is the grace of God that we can truly delight as the psalmist did in the law of the Lord. Why don't we go to, the, why don't we go to God in prayer? Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time together in your word, God. There's a lot in Mark 7. Help us, God, to see the things we need to see. Help us to be changed by it. Help us to delight ourselves in you. And Lord, help us all the more to be grateful for the salvation that you alone have provided because, again, we cannot save ourselves. And we pray all this in Jesus' name.